Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, we want to talk about the 2021 Conservative Political Action Conference that just wrapped up on Sunday evening with Donald Trump's speech, his first since leaving office last month. And it was everything we expected it would be, and the conference was everything we would expect from a Republican Party now completely dominated by Donald Trump. And to join me today, I have two political experts and friends. First, my fellow co-founder, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for being back on. Absolutely, Reed. And of course, Lincoln Project Senior Advisor, Stuart Stevens. Stu, thanks for coming. Hey, Reed. Great to be here, man. So obviously the highlight of CPAC was Trump and all of the attendant hero worship or idol worship around him. <laughs> Literal idol worship. <laughs> there was literally a golden Trump calf on wheels that was rolled through the Hyatt space. But when you roll through the golden idol, it reminds you that the religiosity piece of this is really just performative like everything else. But I want to go back through some things. So Stu, I want to start with you. I watched Trump's 90-minute speech late Sunday night. I didn't sleep well after that, not surprisingly. But given the coverage you've seen or any of the things that you saw, what was your takeaway sort of top line from what happened over the course of the last four days or so? I think this idea that there's a civil war in the party is uh, is crazy. As you said, this is Trump's party. If there is a civil war, the Confederacy won. I thought one of the sadder little subplots to CPAC was Nikki Haley, who now is back to praising Donald Trump after attempting to take even just half a step away and maybe suggest that the guy who was impeached twice tried to overthrow the government. Under his watch, 500,000 Americans died. The greatest unemployment since the Depression maybe wasn't such a great president. But now she's back in line. And Nikki Haley, to me, is particularly sad. She would fall into the category that some of us thought she had a great future. Now she has a great future behind her. She was one of those people who went out in 2016. She was a Marco Rubio supporter. She held this event with Rubio where they both attacked Trump for the South Carolina primary. Everything they said was true. Everything they said they still believe today. And yet she collapses. And it's sort of heartbreaking. It's classic politician trying to triangulate that they say enough things that are anti-Trump if it's necessary so that they can lean back on those. But of course, as you noted last week, Stu, when we talked, Trump is such a transactional guy that, you know, he'll forgive you if you just kiss up just enough. So long as he knows that you are willing to praise him, then he'll forgive you because he understands, just like he would, that he'd say something bad about you if it was to his benefit. Rick, what did you see over the course of the last three or four days? Well, I mean, look, one of the most important things we saw, Reed, was that the illusion bubble is still very powerful, saying that the election was stolen. This is the fundamental predicate of Donald Trump's future run, as he said so in the speech. It was stolen from me. It was ripped off. I was done dirty by those urban people. And those people in the audience 
they clapped, they applauded, they cheered wildly. So the big lie of a stolen election is going to be very central to the immediate future. I think the other thing that I saw was, you know, they've really trotted out a lot of the Trump greatest hits from 2016. This was a speech very clearly a Stephen Miller speech, a lot, a lot, a lot about immigrant criminals and dangerous thugs and MS-13 and caravans and all this other stuff. And because of that, you know, I think they're showing us very clearly where they're going and riling up his base with the big lie of a stolen election and the big lie of the dangerous immigrant coming to kill you. And the big lie of all the big lies and the centerpiece of everything about CPAC and the modern, and I use the term now very, very loosely, conservative movement, is that they are the oppressed class. They are the ones who are being treated so badly by big tech or big business or big media or big world or big reality. It was a festival of, oh, we are so beaten down. Oh, we're so taken advantage of. Oh, we're so looked down on. And that's the driving force now. It's this hatred of elites. It's this hatred of institutions. It's this hatred of tradition that informs almost everything they do. And so CPAC was all about their grievances and all about their perceived or imaginary enemies in the world. So I want to get to Trump's speech in a second in more depth. If we must. (laughs) If we must, because it was so illustrative. But before we get to that, I want to nominate our two assholes of the week for a couple of things they said. First is Senator Ted Cruz from Texas, who, not understanding that when you're in a hole, you should stop digging, made this joke. Rob, why don't you roll that for me? I got to say, Orlando is awesome. It's not as nice as Cancun. But it's nice. (laughs) All right. So somebody actually booed him. I heard that. Right. I mean, that's how big an ass. When you get booed at CPAC and you're Ted Cruz, like that means that literally there are 8 billion people on this planet. 7,999,999,000 people loathe you. And you're the only person who doesn't. And then we had shiny Josh Hawley, who spent the last few days talking about how he was appalled by anybody discussing how he could possibly be responsible for the January 6th insurrection, but decided to trot this one out this weekend. You know, on January the 6th, I objected during the Electoral College certification. Maybe you heard about it. I did. I stood up. I stood up. And I said, I said, we ought to have a debate about election integrity. All right. So a couple of things on that line. One, Stu, in your time in American politics, has there been anybody who equaled or surpassed Josh Hawley's status as a member of the cynical elite? Josh Hawley really is just a unique embodiment of everything people hate about politics. Let's just review his little bio here for a sec, because, I mean, it really is a Saturday Night Live kind of sitcom. He went to this elite prep school, then he went to Stanford, then he taught at St. Paul's in London, which was founded in the 15th century. <laughs> and he went to he went to Yale Law School. He wrote a very good little biography of Teddy Roosevelt, which he published at 28 by Yale University Press. And he's running against the elite. You know, by Josh Hawley's standard, I'm sort of like, this uneducated peasant because, you know, I I only went to Oxford for a couple of years. I mean, it is the most absurd 
self-invention. And the reason he's doing it is because here's a guy prepared all his life to be sort of like a responsible human being, a person who could contribute. That's why he went to school. But he realizes he has nothing in common with the non-college educated Trump voters. So he has to overcompensate. And that's why he goes straight to racism. And it's very, very dangerous. The path to 1940s Germany was littered with people like Josh Hawley. I mean, Goebbels had a PhD from Heidelberg. So I think that there is a particular betrayal for those who are the most advantaged in life, who use their advantages to portray themselves as victims. It's just absolutely despicable. You know, we shouldn't be surprised by these guys, right? Cruz and Hawley were two of the architects of the whole idea of objecting to the electoral vote count, which you've discussed ad nauseum, so we won't have to do it again. But let's get into Trump's speech. Now, the Republican Party is the Trump Party. I think we've believed that really even since before we launched. I think what we understood at the Lincoln Project was in 2020, you couldn't be anti-Trump and be pro-Republican, that they were one and the same. You had to make a choice that he was the embodiment of the party as it stood. We saw that with the convention, you know, the platform was whatever Trump is, whatever Trump says is what we're good with. And so, you know, earlier this year, there was a little bit of talk about how Trump wanted to start a new party. And he said this during the course of his speech, which put paid to that, but also I think means that he really did want to start a new party because anytime he's this vociferous about something uh, being a lie, that typically is true. Rob, can we play that one? And I want you to know that I'm going to continue to fight right by your side. We will do what we've done right from the beginning, which is to win. We're not starting new parties. You know, they kept saying, he's going to start a brand new party. We have the Republican Party. It's going to unite and be stronger than ever before. I am not starting a new party. That was fake news. Which means it was totally going to happen. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, as someone, as, as you all have probably heard, as someone who toiled in the independent and reform space for three years and tried to start a new political party, I'm sure when he said that out loud and it leaked, his political guys went crazy because they're like, Mr. President, you have no idea how hard that is to do. Also, they have used RNC as a vast money laundering operation. And if they no longer, Trump world no longer controls the RNC, someone might come in there and actually look at the books and they would be appalled. So, you know, they've turned the Republican Party into just another money scam. It's an ATM machine for the Trump crime family. And they have to control it because otherwise it's only going to increase the legal jeopardy that the entire family is in. I do think one thing about starting another party. Let's never underestimate one thing. Trump is a profoundly lazy individual. Aside from the financial scheme that they've already got running, which has pumped hundreds of millions of dollars with a skim to the Trumps through the RNC, through the Make America Great Committee, through the Trump campaign and a million other super PACs. And I say that without exaggeration, hundreds of millions of dollars, all of those things, those still exist. And as Stuart said, you know, why would they bother to let anybody go and look at the books now? The only way they would give up the RNC at this point is if they burned it to the ground completely and shredded the ashes. Like, don't underestimate the laziness of Trump and the idea that his confidence in his hold over the party is justified. And you had people this weekend there who we all know in private robustly hate him kissing his ass. 
So there were two sort of parallel themes I heard during Trump's speech. One was the election and election integrity. And that was really a theme of the whole week. What was not paired with the idea of election integrity was the idea of democracy, that every vote should be counted and every voice that can and should be heard should be heard. It was all in the context of it was stolen. We must protect this. I won a third time. And, I, you know, he was speaking from a teleprompter um, and, and he wandered off as he is wont to do. But he referenced this stolen election. He won for the second time. He'll have to beat them for the third time. That it must have been on the plates. It must have been written into the speech, which I think means that Miller and co are totally on board with the idea of the election fraud piece. I counted in 90 minutes. Donald Trump said the word democracy once, and that was in the context of Joe Biden and the Democrats trying to steal it. But you heard all of the things he said were, you know, he mentioned Michigan by name. He mentioned Detroit by name. He mentioned Pennsylvania by name. He mentioned Philadelphia by name. And what it says to me is what we learned just after January 6th or what we learned in the context of January 6th was they are, as we've seen, you know, nationwide now reviving the Jim Crow piece of this, right, trying to reduce the number of people who can vote, trying to get rid of anything other than in-person Election Day voting and, you know, blasting all of those people who did not help him steal the election because it wasn't enough when he was the Article two branch sitting in the White House to attack the Article one branch, which is Congress. He then went on, you know, an assault on the Article three branch, the judiciary yesterday saying that the Supreme Court didn't have the guts or the backbone to do what they needed to do when 20 states said that, you know, the election was rigged and you should throw these votes out. So we shouldn't expect that there's any going to be anything other than this election security electoral fraud frame for the next 18, 20 months. And enough of his people certainly believe it. But Stuart, where does this take us now? Because, you know, we've talked about this and I know that you've talked to a bunch of folks that if the Republicans take the House next year, you know, there are a whole heck of a lot of bad things that could happen. What have you heard so far? Well, look, I think the greatest danger we're in is not to realize the great danger. There is, with Biden in office, there is the appearance of normalcy to our politics. But we are in a moment unlike any we've had since 1860. You have CPAC, the largest gathering of high elected officials who do not believe America lives in a democracy since 1860. And this is not a small thing. You have millions and millions and millions of Americans now, and you have one of the major parties and the world's only superpower endorsing the concept that America is not a democracy. It is naive to think that the outcome of this is certain. I think it's naive to think that democracy is going to win here. They want to take over Congress so that they can impeach Biden and Harris. You know, I mean, this is one thing about the, the Lincoln Project, you know. I mean, I think that you guys who started it and those of us who worked in it, you know, we realized how dangerous Trump was because we knew these people. I mean, I go back to this great cross I bear. Jason Miller was my intern. <laughs> as dangerous as they look, they're worse. They have no sense of right or wrong. The normal limiting factors that we would associate with responsibility in government, responsibility in society. They don't have any of that. And they are attempting to destroy the American experiment. And this is one of my big complaints about both what well, Republicans now have embraced, but the Democrats, I think, have been slow to recognize this and admit it. Now, I kind of get that because they have to work with Republicans. They're trying to pass legislation, which is their job. I, I respect that. But the unique role of the, of the Lincoln Project is to go out there and sound the alarm and to point this out and to give 
those across America who are terrified a vehicle to fight. Because the way that, if you look just at history, the way that fascists and these people are fascists, the way that they end democracies is they outlast the other side. They're always willing to go a little bit further than the other side. And the other side eventually just sort of gives up. And we can't do that. This is a national emergency, and we should not pretend that it's not. So, Rick, calling back to something Stuart talked about last week, and we, we all have known through history, was that a lot of times, you know, either in politics and life, people will make a choice that requires less of them because the other choice may create a worse outcome, right? So you sit back and you say, maybe it won't be that bad. Again, you know, we've referenced, as Stuart said, in 1930s Germany, people were less afraid of National Socialism than they were of Communism. And now what I noticed also, too, in Trump's speech and more along the conference was, you know, Trump said Joe Biden leads to socialism, leads to communism. And then he calls out the Green New Deal. He calls out defund the police. He calls out open borders. And so to me, the part of any great con is that it has to be believable enough just to hook people. And if there are 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump, I wonder how many of those said, I don't really like Donald Trump, but I'm afraid of those guys. I think it could be a third of them. So how do we talk to our friends on the Democratic side of the aisle to say, you may not believe that anybody believes what he says, but you should not believe that they're maybe not as scared, if not more scared of what it is you think you want to do? Well, I've made this point in my most recent book, and I've made this point in, in articles. Our friends on the Democratic side, they have a misapprehension, I think, about a lot of the country. And I'm going to use the appropriate phrase here. They really believe that there is a homogeneous distribution of wokeness around the country and that everywhere is the same. And as we saw in the work we did at the Lincoln Project this year, when we were targeting soft voters, soft Republicans and independents and even a few conservative Democrats, those people in Ohio and Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, they are not hard progressives. They are not Bernie people. They're not AOC people. And there is a purity checking that goes on inside the Democratic Party, I think, that may put their majorities at risk if they're not very careful. Nancy Pelosi understood at the end of this last election that one of the reasons that she has a smaller majority now is there were people in her caucus that when they heard the phrase defund the police, they were like, cool, sounds great, without any idea of the political consequences of that moment. And that is something the Lincoln Project was always very good at and that we're always been very effective at and that we'll continue to try to bring into the light. You know, there are political framings and narratives and statements and postures that don't work outside of green rooms and woke Twitter. There are a lot of those things in this country where our old friends in the Republican Party will ruthlessly, brutally exploit those messages. I want to go back to defund the police for a second. That message was something that when it started to become a part of the political narrative, the Republicans were in heaven because they recognize that African-Americans don't want to defund the police. They want the police to be honorable and display equal justice and compassion. They want to try to make sure that the police aren't acting for racial motivations, which is clearly you know, a problem in this country. But they don't want their streets to be an anarchist wasteland. And that framing is something that our progressive friends and our Democratic friends just have historically underestimated and that we have historically been able to exploit and to leverage against them. 
And, you know, if if anybody's listening to this and they say, well, that's just, you know, that's the wrong way to do politics. I'm sorry, but it is how politics is done in this country. And if you believe your opponent will not stab you in the face after he stabbed you in the face a hundred times over something stupid, you're going to get stabbed in the face some more. So on the flip side, Stu, Bill Kristol over at Republican Voters Against Trump had a piece out this morning saying that establishment and moderate Republicans should work with Joe Biden. And this made many conservatives and Republicans go crazy. And he said, I would rather work with Joe Biden and save democracy than turn Joe Biden away and have the forces of Trump, you know, be successful. So it's not just a Democratic thing. There are a bunch of folks who consider themselves conservatives and Republicans for whom the cross-partisan fighting is still job one, even in the context of what we're seeing here. I think it's difficult for people to realize the full gravitational pull of party loyalty. It becomes, for a lot of people, not just a decision that you make on the first Tuesday in November. It becomes a cultural choice. It becomes a choice that has a lot to do with your social setting, your environment, who your friends are. It defines how you see the world because the information that you consume is determined by your political views because you're fed this information by these logarithms on uh, your computer. I mean, the idea that you have this lunatic in Orlando leading a party of anti-democratic, predominantly racist people who want to destroy the American experiment versus Joe Biden, that it's controversial to think that we should back Joe Biden and do everything we can to make sure he succeeds. I mean, someone who is actually attempting to have a COVID policy that that is controversial is in itself the greatest condemnation, I think, of the sadness of where our politics is. And we have to grow out of that if we're going to save the country. You know, to that end, Donald Trump and his goons clearly picked up that we had started defining Trumpism and wanted to figure out a way to counter that. And in the course of his speech, Trump attempted to describe what Trumpism is. He did it, I think, poorly because they don't really have a good answer. But Rob, why don't we listen to how Donald Trump thinks of himself and his movement? Many people have asked, what is Trumpism? A new term being used more and more. I'm hearing that term more and more. I didn't come up with it. We did. Yeah, we did. But what it means is great deals, great trade deals, great ones, not deals where we give away everything, our jobs, our money. It means low taxes and eliminating job-killing regulations, Trumpism. It means strong borders, but people coming into our country based on a system of merit so they come in and they can help us as opposed to coming here and not being good for us, including criminals, of which there are many. It means no riots in the streets. It means law enforcement. So he tried (laughs) to start he tried to start with sort of, you know, normal, as we would call it, once upon a time. American conservatism with low taxes, job growth, low regulation, but he just couldn't help himself. Swinging back into the the ugliness of of MS-13 and, you know, law and order and riots in the streets, which all go back to the discussion we were just having about defund the police. But the broader weekend really was an example of Trumpism, of all the seven things that we outlined on our last episode. But I think also, you know, the parallel to the election insecurity piece or security piece was just the whole thing predicated in fear, which was you must come with me because they are going to be worse. They are going to let the bad people from Central and South America in to steal your jobs and kill your families. 
They are going to let the drug dealers run rampant. They're going to let those people tear down the buildings of your town and your city, and then they're going to come for your house. They, 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 fear, 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 all of it because they have nothing positive to say. But clearly we've seen that it can be effective. I mean, Trump even said that, you know, although he lost and he couldn't believe it, the Republicans basically held serve in the Senate. They lost a couple of seats, but they're 50-50, right, when we even thought that they could be down. And they picked up 15 seats in the House. So there seems to be some resonance with what he says, even in the concept of, you know, we need to have a check on whoever sits in the White House. So, Rick, you didn't get to participate with us last week on the Trumpism front, but what did you see in that regard with the the dear leader worship, the right wing media, the financiers who clearly helped pay for this? You know, all of the things that we've seen in this, you know, right down to the folks who are the sheep who were sitting in the room cheering on the most ridiculous stuff. Yeah, look, I think this was, you know, orange Fidel Castro doing his, you know, 90 minutes of ranting to an audience that is very much prepared and willing to eat it all up over and over again. And people trying to put an intellectual veneer on Trumpism is not a new thing. It's been going on since 2015 of these guys trying to find their way in a nice way to say, yeah, but this national populism will be different than all the other ones with the death camps. So you see him trying to make this case in a slightly rational way for a few seconds at a time, and it never holds up and it won't hold up. But what you're looking at is a party that has become so completely wrapped around the concept of one man, of the dear leader of an intense and closed system, that it's going to be very, very difficult to escape from that. It's going to be very, very difficult to shake it off. And look, our friends on the right who are trying to either form a new conservative party or who are trying to reform the GOP, they have to realize there is a massive, massive obstacle in their path. Trump is not going away, folks. This is not a guy who is going to just say, you know, I'm done. I've made enough money off this scam. I've had enough fun doing this. I think I'll just go ahead and let Marco Rubio run for president next time. It's not going to happen. And so what you're going to see around Trump in the next three years as he prepares to run again and even if he holds off and, and just uses it as a financial scam, you will see him continuing to drive the party further and further out of reality. And none of the things that the party will need in the future will be present because there is a declining demographic group in this country, and it's basically 55-plus white dudes with a high school education, the hot, hot core of Trumpism. And if you have a national party that begins to roll back those things, you're going to see tremendous damage done over time by clinging to Trumpism. And one of the things about Trump yesterday boasting, oh, I've won all these seats, this and that. Well, at the state level, during the course of the Trump administration, I think the number is like 725 seats were lost by Republicans during the Trump era. That's in state legislative bodies. Those people took a hard hit. And that will have some repercussions going forward because redistricting is coming. Some of these states where the Democrats now control the legislative process, the redistricting process, you know, it's not going to be this bright line you can draw into the future that says the, the further right I go, the more I win. It probably is exactly the opposite of that. But because Trump will stick and he, he will not let go of the party, he will not let go of control, his ideas will infect it further. You'll have smart, evil people trying to become more Trump than Trump. Josh Hawley, call your office. Uh, and you're going to see a lot of that really break our national political atmosphere into something even darker and more troublesome than we've had it so far. So 
just to close the loop and, you know, the book, thankfully, on CPAC 2021, which will be surpassed only in insanity by CPAC 2022, Stu, just building off of what Rick just said about that there's a darkness ahead of us. What do we as the Lincoln Project and other folks like us in the pro-democracy movement, how do we start to add more light back to the situation? How do we bring the torch of freedom and democracy back to America in the context of Trumpism on one side, probably a sclerotic Democratic Party on the other, and an establishment which just wants everything to continue as is? I think the greatest danger is thinking that this is a normal time. There's a great reluctance to think I live in a country that appears to be normal. There's not troops in the streets. You know, I can go to the post office and there's not tanks there. But there's still a quiet national emergency that we're in. And in emergencies, you make choices and decisions that you don't make normally. And you're willing to put aside certain aspects of your life to protect other aspects. And that's what we have to realize here. We have to realize that. We've been called to this, whether or not we realize it or not, or whether or not we want to be, that it is our turn to defend democracy. And look, as far as the call to service goes, we got it pretty easy. I'm old enough. My dad fought in World War II, 28 island landings in the South Pacific. We're not being asked to storm a beach. We're just being asked to stand up to a ridiculous figure from Queens and his followers. And I look back at all the ads I made about taxes, all the ads I made about health care. It all means nothing now compared to where we are now. So the premise that we have to go along with Trump so we get like a conservative judge, so-called, or we get this, it's all nonsense. In an emergency, you are willing to make allies with those that you disagree with on a lot of issues. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, who did we fight World War II with? You know, Stalin. I think it's important for the left to embrace those of us who they've heard this rumor we were Republicans, not to say, well, therefore, you're disqualified for being part of public discourse, but you have to find common ground here and you have to fight the larger enemy. And the larger enemy is this threat to America. And we're going to look back on this moment. Either it's going to be at the time when people put aside a lot of differences and came together to defend America, or it's going to be a time where America slipped out of democracy and into a sort of crypto fascism that is the embodiment of the Republican Party now. Right now for Joe Biden, there should be three issues on Joe's portfolio right now, COVID, COVID, and COVID, because that is wrapped into everything. But you can see the cross pressures building on him to do reparations, to do Green New Deal, to do the wish list stuff. And it's all a question of how long they want to keep those majorities they have in Washington. And if you deal with COVID, if Joe Biden gets COVID under control and knock wood, we're starting to see progress in the numbers and the vaccination program is rolling out, knock wood that it continues that way for the good of the country and for the good of everyone's families listening to this. But there will be a corollary political benefit if he's able to focus on that and not be distracted and not get into a civil war inside his own party that will help prevent Mitch McConnell from sitting in the big chair again and help prevent the words House Speaker Kevin McCarthy from being uttered again. Well, a few closing thoughts before I leave you today. I just finished a book by former Soviet dissident Natan Sharansky called The Case for Democracy. 
And there was something he said at the end of his book that really resonated with the conversation that Rick and Stuart and I had today. He said, to win the battle against today's tyrants, we must once again turn political opponents into allies and unite the world's democracies in a common purpose. We must recapture moral clarity by recognizing that the great divide between the world of fear and the world of freedom is far more important than the divisions within the free world. At a time when freedom and fear are at war, we must move beyond left and right and begin to think again about right and wrong. And I don't know that there's any statement that sums up, I think, where we are in American politics today than that. Well, listen, guys, I want to thank you both for joining me today. Before we go, where can folks find you online? Well, I am on Twitter at the Rick Wilson. Same on Instagram. I avoid Facebook, but apparently I'm there for PR reasons, but I hate it, so I never go there. So reach me on Twitter or Instagram. And Stu, how about you? Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, God help us, uh, Stuart P. Stevens at Twitter. And both Rick and Stu are accomplished authors. You can find their books on Amazon or your local bookseller. I hope you'll do that. I'm Reed Galen. You can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. So with that, thanks, everybody, and we will see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmeyer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m., as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.